Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament, John chapter 6. In just a moment, we'll read a few verses from John 6, verses 37 through 40. I would encourage you to keep your Bible open because we're going to look at a number of different passages tonight and really throughout the series. It's it's not going to be so much uh, preaching through one text like we're used to, but it's going to be looking at uh, several different verses uh, each sermon. I mentioned to you this morning that we're going to uh, start a new series tonight on covenant theology. Uh, I'm not exactly how sure how, how long this series will last, um, probably five or six weeks. But if you've been in a Reformed church for any length of time or you've done any reading on Reformed theology, you've probably heard that phrase before, covenant theology. Now the word covenant is uh, used very frequently in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's used uh, around 280 times. In the New Testament, it's used over 30 times. And so when, when something is used in the Bible over 300 times, it's probably fairly significant. But what exactly is covenant theology? And, and not just um, what is it, but, but how important is this really for your life as a Christian? Go out here tonight, you leave here, you go into your normal life in the world, you're working, you're going to school, you're in your house, you're doing whatever you're doing. And, and what, what practical benefit is there to a study of covenant theology? Well, we're going to look at that also, not just the, the head part, but really the heart part as well. And we're going to start tonight with what's called the covenant of redemption. So I'd like to read John 6, 37 to 40 to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be looking at. John 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You might have heard the name Augustine before. Some people say Augustine, some people say Augustine, doesn't matter. Tomato, tomato, you've heard Augustine. Augustine was a fifth century uh, bishop of the church in what is now Algeria. And one day, um, Augustine was asked this question. They said, um, Augustine, what was God doing before he created the world? And Augustine's famous reply was, he was creating hell for people who ask stupid questions. (laughs) Now that's a little extreme, but Augustine's point was a good one. We, We shouldn't be trying to figure out things that God hasn't revealed to us. And the Bible does say that, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God. Isaiah 55, verse 8, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Even uh, one of our doctrinal standards, the Canons of Dort, says this, that we shouldn't pry into the secret and deep things of God. And so we get the point, right? We understand that there are some things that we just aren't meant to know. 
And we aren't to pry into those things because God hasn't revealed them to us. Now that doesn't mean, however, that we know nothing about what God was doing in eternity past. And and this is where this covenant of redemption comes in. What was God doing before he created the world? Well, tonight we're going to look at three questions. First of all, what is a covenant? That's important as we start the series to understand what a covenant is. Secondly, what is the covenant of redemption? And third, how does the covenant of redemption benefit me? So what's a covenant? What's the covenant of redemption? And okay, what does this mean for me? Again, the word covenant is a biblical word. It's, it's used all throughout the Bible. It's used especially in the Old Testament. It's also a word that we use a lot as Reformed Christians, right? We, we talk about our covenant children. We talk about covenant education. We talk about the sign of the covenant. We talk about God's covenant faithfulness. Even some churches have the word covenant in the name of their church. But we have to be careful because it's one of those words that it's really easy to kind of throw around, right? We just use it all the time. Covenant, covenant, covenant. And we don't really understand fully what it means. And so if we're rightly going to understand covenant theology, and there's not just one covenant in the Bible, it's imperative that we have a proper understanding and definition of the word covenant. Now, throughout the years, there have been many, many different definitions of the word covenant. Perhaps the simplest one is the one that is found in the children's catechism. Parents, if you've gone through that catechism with your children before, you might remember this, and kids, you might remember this too. The question is very simply in the catechism, what is a covenant? Remember the answer? A covenant is an agreement between two or more people. And and that's true. A covenant is an agreement between two or more people. But there's a little bit more to a covenant than that. And so I think a definition, the definition that a man named Chris Cahey gives in his book, The Tale of Two Adams, is a good definition. He says this, and I think it might even be in in your sermon outlines, or at least part of it. A covenant is an oath sworn legally binding relationship enforced by God. And so for the next six weeks or so, this is going to be our working definition of a covenant. A covenant is an oath sworn, legally binding relationship enforced by God. And I think every covenant in Scripture can fit within that definition. So very briefly, just think about three parts of this definition. First of all, a covenant involves a swearing of an oath. In some covenants, it's God who swears the oath. And and that means when, when God swears the oath in a covenant, that covenant cannot be broken. You can think of the Noahic covenant. Children, you remember that, that God said that he would never again destroy the world with a flood. And because God took that oath, that covenant cannot be broken. But in other covenants, it's man who swears the oath, which means that that covenant can be broken. You can think of the Mosaic covenant, for instance. In Exodus 24, God's people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Did they do that? 
Did they do all that the Lord had spoken? No, they didn't. They broke that covenant. They broke their promise. Secondly, a covenant is also legally binding. Parties who enter into a covenant are obligated to keep that covenant, and if not, there are consequences. And third, a covenant is enforced by God. God relates to his people, and we're going to see this throughout the series. He relates to all things by covenants. And it's not man who initiates these covenants, but it is God. So that's the definition of covenant. Secondly, though, what is the covenant of redemption? A covenant of redemption is not a covenant that we normally talk about. We, 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 maybe you've never even heard of the covenant of redemption before. We talk about God's covenant with um, Abraham, his covenant with Moses, his covenant with David. Uh, we talk about the new covenant. But the covenant of redemption doesn't get um, a whole lot of press. Not a lot of people talk about the covenant of redemption. Now the first thing we can say about the covenant of redemption is that it doesn't take place with any humans. Um, The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, those are covenants that involve human beings. But this covenant, the covenant of redemption is very unique because it takes place within the Trinity. It takes place before the foundation of the world. And and here's a basic definition of the covenant of redemption. You can find it in your sermon outline. The covenant of redemption is the covenant established in eternity past between the three persons of the Trinity. The Father appoints the Son to accomplish the redemption of the elect. The Son voluntarily takes on this mission to accomplish this redemption. And the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to apply the work of redemption that Christ accomplished. So that's it. That's the covenant of redemption. There are three basic parts. All three persons of the Trinity are involved. The Father appoints the Son as the Redeemer. The Son voluntarily agrees to come to earth to be the Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit agrees to apply the work of Christ to the elect. Now the question is, and maybe you're asking this right now, does the Bible really teach this? Is there biblical support for the covenant of redemption? I have up here with me a big Bible concordance. It's a big, big, heavy, heavy book. In this book, you can find every English word in the Bible. This is the New American Standard Version. Every English word in the NASB is found in this book. And so if you want to find every time the, the word faith is used in the Bible, you can open this book. There's like two pages worth. If you want to find every time the word holy is used in the Bible, you can look it up in this book. There's like two and a half or three pages worth. Every word in your English Bible is found in this book. Here's what you won't find in this book. The covenant of redemption. You will not find the phrase, the covenant of redemption, in this giant heavy concordance. Now you might say, that's not good. Why would we believe something that's not found in the Bible? But here's the thing we have to remember. Just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't teach that doctrine. You can look in the same concordance for the word Trinity all you want and you'll never find it. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. But the Bible does 
teach the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible does teach that there is one God and three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so again, the question is, does the Bible teach the concept of the covenant of redemption? It absolutely does. Now, there are a lot of passages we could look at to to consider this this evening, but I want to start with the one we read just a moment ago, John 6. So if you have your Bible open, look at John 6. Jesus uses language here to refer to his relationship with the Father prior to him taking on human nature and coming to this earth. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me. Verse 38, I've come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, all that he has given me. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. You see that Jesus is referring to a mission that the Father had given him to do. He's talking about coming to do the will of the one who sent him. This is the covenant of redemption. The father appointed the son. The father sent the son on a mission to accomplish the redemption of the elect. Now there's another place in John's gospel. This also comes out clearly. Go to John 17. John chapter 17. You might know this uh, as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is the prayer that he prayed the night before he went to the cross. Look at verse 1 of John 17. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Notice that phrase, all whom you have given him. It's a reference to the people the Father gave to the Son in order to redeem. Now look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The Father gave the Son work to accomplish. And Jesus came to earth to accomplish that work. And when you read the Gospels, you you notice something interesting, that all throughout his earthly life, Jesus was about doing the will of his Father. For example, you might remember that when Jesus was a young boy, he told his parents in Luke 2 that he had to be in his Father's house. John 4, 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 2, we are told that that zeal for God's house consumed Jesus. Jesus came to do the work of his Father, which is exactly what the covenant of redemption tells us. And children, do you remember the last words of Jesus on the cross? Jesus is is hanging on the cross, and and right before he dies, he says, it's just one word in Greek, it's three words, it is finished. You say, what was finished? The work the Father gave him to do. Now, Now, how do we know that this covenant of redemption was made in eternity past? How do we know that that God didn't make the covenant of redemption right after Adam sinned in in Genesis chapter 3? Well, take your Bible and go to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to notice verse 3, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, meaning Christ, before the foundation of the world. This took place, Paul says, before the foundation of the world. Now look at verse 9 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Two words to take note of there, purpose and plan. This is God's plan of redemption. And Paul says it took place before the foundation of the world. Now go over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll get to the so what in a minute. This, this isn't just a, a theological lecture tonight. This, this has practical importance. We'll get there. But we've got to set this foundation first. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Notice verse 9. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own, there's that word purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, from before the foundation of the world. There are also a number of Old Testament passages we could look at. One that I would like us to especially, especially note is Isaiah 53. And so if you want to turn there, Isaiah chapter 53, very, very familiar passage to us. Um, children, this is an amazing passage because it, it tells us what Jesus would do on the cross 700 years before he was born. So 700 years before Jesus took on human flesh and came to this earth, Isaiah 53 is this prophecy of what's going to happen when Jesus comes. Now, we, we don't know what's going to happen 700 years from now, but, but this is a prophecy given by God with amazing detail. And if we're, if we're believers in Christ, these are... These are some of the most beautiful words and phrases in all of the Bible. Look at verse 4. Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6. All of our sins were laid on Jesus. The reason I, I told you to turn there is because all of these things... Describe what Jesus did in order to accomplish our salvation. He came to earth with a, a specific task to do. Sometimes we go places without any idea in mind of what we're going to do, and that's okay. Sometimes you go to the mall and you just walk around the mall for some reason. Sometimes you go to the beach and you don't know what you're going to do, but you just go hang out. Jesus didn't come that way to this earth. He didn't come and say, well, let's see what happens. He came with a specific mission. He came with a specific task, and he wasn't a victim. We need to purge from our minds any idea that the Lord Jesus was a victim. He, he wasn't just caught up in some unjust trial. This was all according to the eternal 
plan and purpose of God. That's what, if you're still in Isaiah 53, that's what verse 10 says. It says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's plan. In fact, Acts chapter 2 verse 23 says that Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Definite plan of God. And we don't want to forget the vital work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who comes and, and, and applies the work of redemption to the hearts and the lives of the elect. For example, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to this guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was kind of clueless about spiritual things in a sense. And, and, and Jesus told him that he had to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And that, that phrase born again means born from above. And in other words, the, the Holy Spirit must give the dead sinner life. The Holy Spirit must give the sinner the gift of faith. And, and that's his work in applying the redemption of Christ that Christ earned for us. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. In, in applying the work of redemption to you. And so you put all of this scriptural data together, and, and we could look at a whole lot more. It's pretty clear, I think, that the covenant of redemption is a biblical doctrine. It's also a, a historical doctrine. It's also a confessional doctrine. We don't have time to go into all the detail, but, but many of our Reformed forefathers taught the covenant of redemption it's spoken of, it's not spoken of in the three forms of unity, but it is spoken of in the Westminster. Westminster Confession of Faith says this, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man. So it's a biblical, historical, confessional doctrine, but is it practical? That's the third question tonight. How does the covenant of redemption benefit me? This is the so what question. It's always important, I think, to see how doctrine connects to life. It's not just about head. It's not just about more knowledge. We, we don't want to be guilty of falling into one of two extremes. One extreme is, is just thinking it's all about doctrine. It's all about theological rightness. It's all about getting more stuff in our head. That's one extreme. The other extreme is to go, doctrine is so boring. It's so dry. It's impractical. Give me, give me something I can relate to. Well, if you're a Christian, the covenant of redemption is incredibly relevant to you. And I'm going to explain to you why. Two reasons. Number one, the covenant of redemption teaches us that our redemption is not God's plan B. This isn't God's plan B. Think about this. Um, the, the plan of salvation wasn't something that, that God came up with when Adam and Eve fell into sin. It wasn't like, you know, the fall of man happened in, in Genesis 3 Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they were told not to eat, and, and then God went, okay, now what are we going to do? Let me think. Let me think. I know. I'll send Jesus, and he'll save them. No. The covenant of redemption was planned by God in eternity past. 
And all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were involved and at work to ensure that you would be saved. They worked together in perfect harmony. And this plan was from before the foundation of the world so that you would be saved. The gospel is not plan B. The plan of redemption is not plan B. This is something that we see from before the foundation of the world. And secondly, because that is true, this should provide us with tremendous comfort. You know, it's sad that that there are a lot of people who think they have to work for their salvation. It's sad that there's a lot of people who think that, at the very least, they have to contribute something to their salvation. I always remember a conversation that I had with a, a man who was a, he was a furniture rep for a, um, a major furniture manufacturer years ago. When I was, when I was managing, managing a furniture store, I would get mattress reps and bedroom furniture reps and living room furniture reps, and they would, they would call on me, and they would come into the store, and we'd sit down, and we'd go over the, the latest deals, and we'd decide what we're going to buy for the store, and this one guy called on me almost every month. We did a lot of business with this man. And he knew I was a Christian, and, and he had grown up going to Catholic church, but at this point he was, he was in his, his probably 50s or 60s at the time, and he was a very nominal Catholic at best. And I always remember him saying to me one time, you know, I, I can't get over the fact that you tell me salvation is a free gift. I just can't buy it. It doesn't make any sense. I, I, I have to do something. There's got to be something that I have to do. And there's so many people who think that way. I've got to do something. I've got to contribute something. There's got to be some part that I have to play. But the covenant of redemption helps to erase that thinking from our minds because it reminds us and it teaches us that this is a covenant within the Trinity. To guarantee, not to just make you savable, but to guarantee your salvation. That the Father didn't say to the Son, okay, I want you to go to earth and, and, and die on the cross and we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. At that point, Jesus, once you die on the cross, the ball's going to be in their court. We will have done our part, but now it's on them to do their part. No, the covenant of redemption says this. The Father chose a specific, definite number of people whom he would save from their sin. He chose them. Not based on anything he saw in them, not based on foreseen faith or looking into his crystal ball and seeing who would believe in him, but he chose those whom he would save according to his good pleasure. That was the Father's work. The son then voluntarily took on human nature. He came to earth. He lived a life of perfect obedience to all of God's commands. He died on the cross. He rose again to actually accomplish the salvation of the very same people the father gave him. To actually accomplish the salvation of the elect. And then in time, the Holy Spirit comes and he applies the work of redemption to those same people. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are not working against each other. 
They're working in perfect harmony. And it's beautiful when you think about it, all three persons of the Trinity working together to accomplish your salvation. Though the Father isn't in heaven going, you know, I just don't know who's going to believe in me. The Son didn't come just to make people redeemable or savable, and now it's up to us to do our part. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to to try to do his best to persuade people. He tries so hard, all the while knowing that, you know, people may just end up rejecting him. What kind of God is that? What kind of God is that who is beholden to us? A God who is, you know, doing everything he can, but ultimately is dependent on us? That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God we believe in. I hope you can see the the comfort tonight that, that really comes from understanding this covenant. It's a beautiful doctrine. All three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are working together for the same purpose. To accomplish your redemption. There's zero comfort, zero in thinking you have a part to play. In thinking that now, in a sense, the ball's in your court and God's just waiting and wondering what you're going to do. But there is amazing comfort in knowing what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have done for me and Christian for you. So take comfort in that tonight. This is, this is, not, this is not some mere academic exercise. This is a doctrine that is meant for your comfort. So that's the first one we're going to consider in our series, the covenant of redemption. And I hope you all see and, and, and really know, experience in your heart how wonderful this covenant of redemption really is. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight for this wonderful truth that before the foundation of the world, you, along with the Son and the Spirit, agreed to save a definite number of people for yourself. Thank you that in time you sent Jesus to be our mediator, to be our Savior. And then again you sent the Spirit to apply his work of redemption to us. Father, what comfort there is in in seeing this beautiful doctrine and how all three persons of the Godhead work together to ensure that we will be saved. Lord, help us not to see this as some academic exercise, but, but help us to see this for the comfort it brings and the joy it brings. Father, may we go out and declare to this dark world that Jesus is the Savior. That Jesus is the one who can save us from our sins and save us from the judgment that we deserve. Lord, use us for those purposes and give us comfort and joy in our hearts tonight, we pray in Jesus' name.